Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you, people, my guest today, uh, it's funny because we were just talking. He was on like three and a half years ago. And he's he's a fellow Philly guy. He's from the Northeast, not from Cherry Hill. And I think it's amazing because being an Eagles fan for a very long time, we were so used to having Andy Reid for years that since the last time Ralph Garman, who's my guest, was on, the Eagles have... Had a new coach yes. and switched a new coach. My guest is Ralph Garman. How you doing, Ralph? Hey, Steve. How are you? Glad, glad to be here. Isn't it isn't it crazy when you think about it? Because, you know, I mean, you've been an Eagles fan all your life. I have. And we I had, always say it's a birth defect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you sit there. You know, I honestly, I sit there and I've, I've gotten to notice. I met an Eagles fan, this kid, and it was weird because he was like 22. I, I was at a bar, Black Angus, me and my girlfriend watching the game. And he, first of all, he walked in with a... Carrie Williams jersey. I said, no, 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 take that, take that <laughs> off. I'm, I'm like, why? I'm like, how did you even buy that? They right. don't even have them. That's like when my girlfriend Joanne, she wanted a jersey a few years ago. I was like, I was looking for a pink one, and I got a Deshaun one, but I'm looking. She didn't want a Michael Vick. She didn't want an Asimov because I'm like, he was getting lit up like toast. Yeah. But you think like, you know, when people buy jerseys, like we could wear, we could wear a Bill Bergie jersey, that'd be okay. We could wear something old. But a 22 year old kid wearing a Williams jersey, you're going, what are you thinking? Might as well buy disposable jerseys because exactly. he's not going to be here next season, <laughs> whoever you get. Well, that's what sucks because I got a McCoy jersey for Christmas two years ago, and now I'm like. Oh, yeah, crap. Can't man. wear that. So what do you think about this? So I want to talk to you about, because you're a big fan, what do you yes. think about the state of sports in Philadelphia? Because we used to be like, every team was good. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing that a city the size of Philly, with the history that those teams have, is just such a nightmare right now across the board. It really is embarrassing. Now, I, I'm primarily a hockey and football guy, so the baseball and the basketball doesn't bother me nearly as much, but it's just being from the city and having that be the rep now that it's just a city full of losers stings. It's awful. And yeah. and it's awful is also is, you know, before when Chip Kelly came the first I always compare Chip Kelly to when Hideki Nomo came and pitched for the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. First year he was amazing. Because right. no one knew what was going on. Second year they started catching on. Third year he was in the AL. Yeah. And it's the same thing. I mean, what is it like? Because you know, and you're on the radio, and so I mean you do talk about the Eagles, and it must suck when you have to go in on a Monday morning because you know, when they lose, and unfortunately it's it's devastating. Yeah, in this town, especially when you're in Los Angeles, you've got people who have come here from all around the country. So if you stick up for one particular team, whoever they're playing that week, those fans will be very vocal and slapping you down. And I was slapped down quite a bit this season. And you're on a forum, so you you, you hear it. People are calling because oh, people yeah. know you as the guy. Like, and that's what I say. Like in Philadelphia, because I was going, I was, I was by coastal for two years. Right. And when the Eagles lose, well, you, you check into the like, WIP, and people bitch for like an hour. They're sitting there going, "Oh, you know, screw this, screw that." But the whole week, like Monday and Tuesday, everyone's devastated like everyone walks around like a comatose oh, no there's real mourning after you know yeah, after those fact, games. but then out here i mean it sucks because you're in the morning but then you have people calling in and i'm sure they sit there and go oh yeah because and we're philadelphia fans when the eagles win we talk our crap we Absolutely. post our stuff about cowboys and giants but i mean have what are some of the worst calls you've gotten when you're on air and just something that you just sat there and went god i just want to go off in the sky but i have to watch what i say yeah it's it's a delicate balance because you don't want to ostracize people and you don't want to turn people off. But at the same time, like you said, being from Philly, you can't help but defend yourself. Even in a loss, you still want to say, well, you you know, Giants still suck and the Cowboys. And... So the worst that I get is always from the divisional rivals. It's always Giants, Cowboys, Redskins. The Redskins fans were the worst this year because they have had this anger building up for season after season after season. So to be able to trash talk Philadelphia when they won the division was just a, a deluge of uh, slurs and slapdowns and uh, crap talk. But um, 
here's the thing. You know, Chip Kelly was largely, you say people caught on. In my opinion, he was the he was the architect of his own disaster. You know, he got rid of so much talent and he was all about ego and he thought he could win with anybody. That's just not the case in the NFL. So now we got Doug Peterson coming in and I think everybody said, oh, what do you want? Another Andy Reid? I was like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that for 14 years, what Andy Reid did with that team. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Of course, you always are, right? You always think that there's brighter days around the corner. You know, it always it, it's true. It's always sit there and you always think this is going to be the year and then the and it isn't. And then you sit there and you get used to it. It's like anything, you know, if you if you just you don't you don't want to sit there and settle for mediocrity right but you also you want to win and and then you still have to remember no matter like how bad the cowboys are how bad the giants are those idiots will always sit there and go how many rings do you have oh yeah and, and i sit there and i go when someone's like someone's like 35 and and they're from la and they grew up in la and they're a cowboys fan they jumped on the bandwagon when they were like 12. Right. Because there's no way that you sat there and woke up one day and liked a team that sucked. No. So that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing that gets me all the time. And the ancient history battle is just like the lamest crap talking in sports is when you go back to, oh, yeah, well, you know, like Steelers fans say, what about Terry Bradshaw? I was like, are you kidding me? What's <laughs> Let's steal in the, the present tense at least a little bit, you know? Why well, I say, yeah, you used to have hair and you used to be thin and you had a hot looking <laughs> yeah. girlfriend, but look at now you're bald, you're fat, and you're, your girlfriend's awful. Yeah, and that's right. what I say. So that's the thing living in the past. Yeah. So now last time you were on, Joe Schmo was about to come out. Wow, I can't believe it's been that long. Which, by the way, I loved. Thanks I mean, so I mean, that's that's. I mean, I watched them, and we had talked. I was like, I was thinking, are people going to catch on? You know, a contestant because, but your character. I mean, first of all, that must have been a blast playing that character because oh, you were yeah. you were like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Exactly, it was a spoof of Dog the Bounty Hunter and and these reality competition shows. And you know, people said that initially when we started doing the production, it was the third go around with Joe Schmo. It was our third season. And they said, aren't you afraid people are going to catch on? But there have been so much time between the seasons. This wasn't something that happened year after year after year. When we did the third one, I think it had been 10 years since the first one was on. So there was a lot of space and a lot of time. And I had drastically changed my appearance for the role and stuff. And the truth is, if you're working in basic cable, not everybody's going to see the show. It's not like a network show where, you know, a, a majority of television viewers are going to catch on. So it wasn't it wasn't a real concern, but we were real proud of what we did with that show, and it was a bummer because not a lot of people watched. We, the ratings weren't great, but uh, in terms of the work, yeah, we had really had fun putting that together. Well, the kid, the guy who won, was just seemed like such a nice kid. Chase and just, Rogan, yeah, just so competitive. Like like you you felt you were like you felt bad that he was getting joked on, but then you felt good because you're like, man, this guy, he is positive he's a positive guy and i mean he was a baller getting cut and like those people were like ah screw it but he was going crazy he was fully committed and this the premise of this show the first one we did was a, sort of a takeoff on big brother and survivor the second one was a swipe at the bachelor and bachelorette type shows and then this one was a real competition show and he thought he was competing for a job as a bounty hunter. So the stuff that we had him do, he was getting tased <laughs> and he was chasing people, you know, holding guns on people and, and you know, like crack houses and stuff. <laughs> he really thought he was out there. And you have to keep in mind, we know it's fake, but he doesn't. And I was blown away by his commitment. But at the same time, what a like upright moral guy he was trying to always do the right thing in the situations. I mean, he was just a prince. So it was nice that you could root for the guy. But at the same time, be in on the joke and get some laughs out of the situation. Too. Now, how do you keep a straight face? Because I'm sorry, man. When you have Lorenzo Lamas walking around in a Speedo oh, and just man. pitching that whole idea. I mean, yeah, I know you're an actor and I know. But there's certain things that 
when it's just so damn funny, I and mean, I'm watching it on TV and I'm dying laughing, and it's like anything, because and especially people, you know, and you you do your live show, Hollywood Babylon, and you 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 deal with comedy, right? And the thing about comics and people who do comedy is, when we see something that's funny, we laugh. Yes. And when it's right there in your face, and you're sitting there going, "Here's an icon, Lorenzo Lamas, walking around pitching a line of speedos and making this poor kid give him his room." Because he's going on, oh, no, I'm used to that star treatment. Right. How do you sometimes? How are you keeping a straight face? I mean, because you, you can't give it up. Because then the kid will know. Well, that's that's the bottom line. Is if you're doing a scripted show, if you're on a sitcom or something, you can go up and everybody can have a good time, and you you go up on your lines and you crack up. But the premise of this show is such that you're doing a play basically for an audience of one. This this kid has to believe everything that's going on around him at all times is absolutely real, and so the tension and the fear and the responsibility of that keeps you. Um, repressed you know it, it, you, you you hold down that instinct you have to go up or crack up or, or uh, you know or you know lose it because you know that if one it takes one slip for this whole house of cards to come down and so it was just fear basically just fear kept me straight and narrow but there were times we were driving in one episode we were driving to this crack house where i was supposed to pick up this this bail skipper, you know, as a uh, as a bounty hunter, we were going to pick him up, and I got the kid sitting next to me. And he's asking me all these questions about the bounty hunting profession and stuff, and all the actors who were playing other people on the show were behind me in the van, and so they're 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 piping in too with like ridiculous questions and insane stuff, and they they are busting up behind me because the kid couldn't see them, but I'm right next to him, so I could tell the energy in the van was let's see if we can get Ralph to crack, you know. And so that was the most difficult time because there were some very funny people on the show. We had Lombardo, of course, you know, Lombardo Boyer, who's uh, had been on this show, and um, Rob Belushi, and just some amazingly funny people who were great improvisers, and it was a challenge. Now, you are a man of very many hats. I know last time you were on Hollywood Babylon, your pod, you were doing the live with Kevin. You'd only, yeah. done, it, you'd only done it a few times, and now it seems like it's a, it's a popular thing. I mean, I know you took it to Philly. Yeah, we've done we've done a show in Philly every year for the past three years. Now, what's that like to go home to your uh, old? Because the best. When I used to work back when I did stand up, I used to work the door at the Comedy Factory outlet. Oh yeah. And when Dom Irera would come in, <laughs> the whole crowd would be people. Hey, Dom, I know, I know your aunt on Sixth, Aunt Peggy on Sixth and South, and you know Dom's just a genius. He'd just be going off the end. Right. What's it like for you coming back? Because you weren't involved with the comedy scene in Philadelphia. Not at all. So no. what's that like? Because, you know, to be someone, a kid from the Northeast, and you're from uh, Mayfair, right? No, I'm oh, from Ronhurst. I thought you were from Mayhurst. No. Oh, Mayfair. Right, That's right. where my dad was from. A couple Mayfair. miles away. But so you're from, you know, you're a Northeast kid coming back. I mean, what's it like when you get to do a show, and there's probably people who show up that you probably don't even remember, and they're probably like, hey, Ralph, remember back in uh, sixth grade when we played kickball? I mean, what's it like? It must be a great feeling to go back. To. It's the best. It's the best because not only do I get to go home, but people do show up out of the woodwork. I've had people come from elementary school and, you know, junior high. And the energy there, because they know I'm one of their own, when the audience shows up, we always sell the place out. It's a quick sellout, and people show up because they like to root for one of their own. And and Kevin Smith, the guy I do the show with, he's a Jersey boy, so he's right across the river, not too far. So the, there's something about those East Coast audiences, and we get there that the energy is just through the roof, and they, they, they've been so kind and, and so supportive over the years. So we, we go back at least once a year to, to check in. And you do it to the improv a lot. Uh, we do it out here almost every Friday night, the late show at the Hollywood Improv on Melrose. That's sort of our home base. But we're going to be traveling a lot this year, too. We've got shows coming up in Boston. We're going to go back to Philly. We've got a uh, Vermont show. 
Um, we're, we're kind of scheduling now where we're going to be traveling this year, but we're going to be all over the country with it. Now, how did that show come to fruition? What happened that started it, and why do you think it got so popular? Because as right, you know, as now there's podcasts everywhere. Yeah, there's exactly. live. I mean, live comedy's changing. It's great that you guys are bringing something into a venue like the Improv and doing something great. I mean, I know there's some people. I heard someone said there's something at one like the Improv Lab where two people are playing like video games. Just, just like a lot of YouTube sensations are selling stuff out now, which they're just they're not used to the live thing. And you guys, you know, what do you think? How did it start? How did the show start? And what? Why do you think it's caught on? Um, well, it began because I have a morning radio show here in Los Angeles that I do with uh, two guys named Kevin and Bean on K Rock, and. Kevin Smith would come in. Kevin Smith would come in um, on a regular basis to pitch whatever he had going on, any films that he had directed, he was promoting, or whatever he had going on. And he and I hit it off right away and became friends. And I used to let him sit in when I do this recurring segment on the radio show called the Showbiz Beat, where I go over entertainment news. But it's just basically a chance to take shots at people. You know, it's just setups for jokes about celebrities and things like that. And the chemistry between us in these short little segments was always great, and we had a great time doing it. So once Kevin started to venture into podcasting, he already had one successful podcast going, and he was looking to do more. We, uh, well, the original idea was to do a long-form entertainment news-type comedy show for radio, and nobody was interested because they said, no one wants to hear anybody talk on the radio anymore. It's all about music, blah, blah, blah. So we kind of tabled the idea, and then once he started got, in, got into podcasting, I said to him, let's do this thing as a podcast. And so we decided to separate it and make it sound a little bit different and have the energy change. We always wanted to do it in front of a live audience. So from the very beginning, we used to do it in front of 50 people at this little um, storefront theater on Santa Monica in Theater Row there here in Los Angeles. And we started selling the place out. And people showed up because, for whatever reason, because Kevin and I are friends or we have a, a good chemistry, we, we make each other laugh and people enjoy watching us goof around. And the show is just kind of grown because we do it in front of a live audience we we start introducing audio clips and then pictures and and art and then video clips and now it's a full-blown theatrical presentation you know it's not it's not even your typical podcast because we present it as if it's almost a live tv show for an audience of 250 people and then the the podcast goes up and we always attach the the the, the other elements the audio and visual stuff with it so you can you can follow along but it, primarily it's a live show that we do that we end up putting the podcast up after the fact. Now, is every week different? Oh, yeah, because the, it's news-based, you know. Primarily, the guts of the show is we still do entertainment and pop culture news of the week, and then we riff on whatever's going on in the world. But we have recurring segments, too, where people will send in, um, you know, dummied up movie posters that they've made we've got a recurring segment we call hitler in the movies where people will send in movies starring hitler that shouldn't like uh um nine and a half weeks or you know <laughs> do the right thing and it's just it's just a gag where we put hitler in movies and people will do these amazing photoshop pieces with hitler being inserted into into movies he doesn't belong and so the, the audience provides us with a lot of content as well which is great and they send in emails and they make requests whether i'm doing celebrity impressions they you know they ask a recurring thing now we have is al pacino sings love songs so I'll, they'll give me a love song and i'll sing it as al pacino so it's just a good time and it's very participatory people like to be involved and so it's a lot of give and take between us and the listening audience and now it's been over it's five and a half years now we've been doing this show and we get we've we've done it in england and we've done it in canada and we've done it all over the united states and people show up 
and they sing along with the jingles for the the different segments and departments that we have like it's a rock show you know you hear the audience singing okay. it back to you it's kind of crazy but people really really have a good time what's it like going to england because once again the sense of humor is different over in england the yes. the, the, the the topics you're going to talk like you, you you do entertainment so that's pretty much universal it is yeah but what's it like when you sit there when you i mean you're used you know what a philly crowd is going to laugh at i mean it's just something and you can just i mean you can sit there with a philly crowd and pull out a wilson good reference and the crowd's going to laugh because right. they remember that but not being from england what's it like going over there and dealing with i mean they have a different sense of humor right but at the same time you have to remember that first of all i'm blessed because kevin smith has a fan base that is worldwide you know he's got an enormous number of fans in the uk in australia places all over the world and also the people who show up to see us are fans of the podcast so you're dealing with a crowd that knows your stuff that likes your stuff so you can pretty much assume if you do your show and do it well that they're going to get a kick out of it because they're already predisposed to like what you do it's not like being a stand-up where you walk into a room full of strangers and you have to win them over you know with with jokes these people have listened to this podcast every week for five and a half years and they know the recurring segments and they know the stuff that we do and so it's more like doing the greatest hits of of you know being in a band than it is almost doing comedy because these are people already on your side and that 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 means everything now as i said you're a man of many hats yeah i can't do any one job very well so i do a bunch <laughs> of different jobs so i can make a living that's what i do Steve. well you do a lot of voices i do yeah. now have you always not were you the kid like doing the ed sullivan when you were little or when did you start doing that was it later in your life yeah it's weird because people say you know how do you how do you do impressions and how you do silly voices and things like that? And I always say, it's nothing I ever cultivated. I never went out saying, oh, I want to learn how to do voices and stuff. It's like a party trick. I think either you kind of know it and you know how to do it or you have a knack for it or you don't. And I was that kid in elementary school. I was doing, you know, Yogi Bear and Scooby-Doo voices for my friends at lunch to make them laugh. But it never in a million years thought that I would work it into some sort of professional aspect in any way. I didn't start doing voices as part of material. We started doing started doing sketch and improv comedy, and uh, that that was years after I'd started becoming an actor. And then once I got into radio, that's when it really started to pay off because you know you have four hours of live content every morning if you're doing a morning show, and so it comes in handy to be able to do a Schwarzenegger impression because at the time I started, you know, he was the governor, and you know that you started to to develop voices that you hadn't done before because you had to because of topical stuff or whatever was going on. And then you, you build up a, you know, a collection of them and you can dip into them when you need to. And it comes in handy. Now, how did you end up getting on the radio? Because as I said, you know, it's it's L.A. I mean, Philadelphia, I'm sure we, as a kid, we listened to the Morning Zoo. And, yeah, and, sure. And, John DeBella. That yep, was my Morning Zoo and, show. And uh, it was John DeBella and Clay Heary and yeah, Mark right. the Shark. And then yeah. there was, I remember listening to, because I always thought, when I first heard Ralph Garman on the radio, I thought, wait, is it Ralph Garland? Like, remember Ken Garland? <laughs> yeah, I, said, right, I, right. I, I said it would make sense that, a, you know, but no, how did, I mean, because you, as a kid, you performed, I know you came out here to be an actor. Yeah, that's but, how I and, started. But how did you get into radio? And then actually the radio has really changed your career. I mean, it's, it's made, it's made, made your career. career. Yeah. So yeah. how did you end up on the radio? It was an accident. I came out here, I was an actor and I was, you know, doing the acting thing and doing auditions and stuff like that. I was waiting tables and tending bar like everybody does. And I had done sketch and improv comedy at a place called the Acme Comedy Theater. And while I was working there, I worked with a guy named Adam Carolla. And Adam had started working on this morning show that I'm on now. He started doing phone bits and stuff for them. And he met their sports guy, who was a guy named Jimmy Kimmel at the time. And so Jimmy and Adam became friends. And they came up with the idea for the man show. 
and then that sold. They went to Comedy Central to go do the man show. So they left this morning show to go do television. And Kevin and Bean, who had worked with Jimmy for years, said to him, you know, now that you're leaving, do you have anybody in mind who can do the kind of things that you do, meaning Jimmy? And Jimmy had done voices for them and wrote a bunch of their stuff and provided content. And they were looking for someone to, to sort of fill in and do the same kind of thing that Jimmy was doing on the show. And Jimmy said, yeah, I have a, a friend of mine named Ralph Garman who does improv and sketch comedy and he does voices and impressions and things like that. He probably would be a good fit. So it was just one of those things. It was just luck. And they introduced me to Kevin and Bean and they said, do you have any radio experience? And I said, no. And they said, well, do you like our show? And I said, I've never heard your show. Because I was tending bar at the time. I was sleeping until right. noon. I don't listen to morning radio. <laughs> so I really came in at a complete disadvantage. And they weren't sure of me, and I wasn't sure of them. So we both agreed, both parties agreed to do about a three-month um, test. And after that, if things didn't work out, they would find a real radio person, and I would just go on my merry way. And that's been... I don't know, 16 years. So wow. So the, that's that's. I mean, it's amazing. Like things happen. That's like uh, when Fritz Coleman started doing the weather. He said he just he was he wanted to do comedy, and someone saw a show and they said, hey, why don't you uh, why don't you fill in? And so he started filling in these weekends. Then all of a sudden, hey, this guy left. Do you want the job? And he was like, I never planned to be a weatherman. Yeah. I wanted to do comedy. He goes, now I can play bigger crowds because people sure. recognize me. Right. And that's what happened with me. I mean, I I was always sort of. Um, did radio begrudgingly because like i said i had no intention i wanted to be an actor and at the at the time i took the job it was me thinking okay this is better than waiting tables which i had sort of had an asshole by that point and um and jimmy kimmel made a good point to me too he said look you should do this for no other reason than it's like comedy boot camp because you're forced to create stuff every day. Whether you're in the mood or not, whether you're inspired or not, you have to come up with something. It's not all going to be gold, but you'll learn how to create like serviceable content every day. And it's a great way to exercise those muscles. That made sense to me too. So I started working and then I realized I was an idiot. I should have jumped at this chance with, you know, more eagerly. Because when you're in Los Angeles and you're doing radio in Los Angeles, the people who are driving to work in the morning listening to you are all the people in the industry who are hiring. And I have gotten so much work from great people who listen to the radio show who said, oh, that guy's kind of funny. Let's give him a shot or bring him in for an audition or meet with him. I got I got the Joe Schmo show that way. I got uh, Family Guy that way. I started doing voices for Seth MacFarlane on Family Guy because the casting director listened to me on the, her drives into work in, on the radio. Um, I've gotten film roles, TV roles. I mean, I've gotten more acting out of radio than I ever could have if I had just kept pounding the pavements and you know banging my head against the walls trying to audition isn't that crazy i mean it's just it's like as you said doors open and you are in la so people do listen yeah but it didn't even dawn on me i should that should have been obvious to me but for some reason it wasn't but now so seth mcfarlane uh the casting person heard you and they started putting you in episodes of family guy mm -hmm. now that must i know because i know you're a big you like this the batman and all in the anim, animation stuff were you a fan were you a fan of animation i mean i know you i know you like comic books yes but were you a fan of the the animate like the simpsons were you a fan of the simpsons and loved family the simpsons guy? and loved family guy i came on family guy a couple years after they had started um they did i don't forget two or three seasons and then they were canceled and then the show started doing so well in reruns that fox called seth and said we want to put you back on the air so there was it was a weird case it very rarely happens in television where a show had been canceled then brought back by the same network so once they went back into production with new episodes that's when i got on board and seth brought me in to do just a few voices i think my first thing was a a dustin hoffman rain man impression i think they had a little bit they were doing and i did that and um that worked out, and then he brought me back 
you know, a couple episodes later for another one. And then just the work started to roll in. And now I'm on every episode and Seth has put me in, in, in Ted. I played Wahlberg's father in, in Ted and um, Million Ways to Die in the West. He gave me a nice role in that. So again, it's just opportunities when they present themselves, you try to do the best work you can. And sometimes it just pans out in, in ways that you never expected. What's it like when you're, as I said, you know, you're an actor too. And so when you know you're going to be in Ted, which let's, let's be honest, everyone knew Ted was going to be funny as all hell. People were going to go see it. It was oh, going to be enjoyable. The exact opposite, Steve. Really? When we were on the set of the film, no one knew what was going to happen. Because, see, when I when it came out, like, me and everyone I knew were like, because we all like Family Guy, and we're just like, this looks funny. And I'm telling you, that damn bear looks so real. I I, I sit there, I go, I would sit there and go, wait a second. You know, you almost think like it's Herbie Belly Chase in an outfit. You no, know, I mean, it, was, it, was it was a miracle how well it turned out. But when we were shooting it, I remember... Seth, first of all, first time director, right? Major motion picture, a lot of CGI and stuff involved in it. And yeah, Family Guy was a was sort of a cult hit, but it wasn't a massive success. So there was no guarantee that even if all the Family Guy fans went to see Ted, it still wasn't going to be a smash. You know, what happened with that show became one of the biggest R-rated comedies in history. What happened when that movie uh, was released was beyond any of our expectations. Because at the time, too, it was kind of a weird concept. It was basically... The concept sounds like a kid's movie, you know, kid makes a wish, a Christmas wish, and his beloved teddy bear comes to life and becomes his best friend. It sounds like something you would see on Nickelodeon, but then you say, okay, but now they grow up and now it's an R-rated comedy and the bear's a pig and he, and he smokes dope and he wants to get laid all the time. I mean, it was a bizarre, twisted concept. There was no way we knew how people were going to embrace that idea, if at all. So when it became the hit that it did, we were all surprised, but obviously pleased and, and then seth you know his movie career blew up too at the same time now what was it like for you to be in a western because you know it's, oh. it's like it's like were you a western fan growing up because i'm trying to think like when we were kids like the western you know uh blazing saddles i mean we all saw that we all love that i'm, right. I'm sorry if, if someone sees that and doesn't think it's funny they they have issues yeah you're just it's, wrong it's a classic is it rude yes it's it it's what a comedy especially back then is supposed to be that's what mel brooks is about yes were you a big western fan growing up or were you just like a fan of like you know like the mel brooks stuff like that western no movie? i grew up as a kid playing cowboys and indians like we all did in the backyard you know i had a little six shooter and a holster and the hat and the whole nine yards and then also you know it's kind of a lost genre but at the time i mean butch casting the sundance kid and true grit and there were all these current uh popular westerns over the span of about 20 years that the wild bunch and it was a kind of a cool genre so i remember like really being into it and then you'd watch all the old john wayne movies on television and reruns and stuff and um i mean i loved westerns and i always in the back of my mind said i would love to do a western but as a city kid you don't think you're going to be that guy you know kevin costner and all these guys are sort of like country folk anyway right. that's their genre but you don't think as a city kid you're ever going to get a chance so I've done a couple different Western pro projects. I did um, Million Ways to Die in the West, which was a blast. And we shot it in the desert in um, um, Arizona, uh, New Mexico. We so shot some in Arizona, but also in New Mexico. I mean, you're right there. You're in the actual yeah, West. So you're actually, it's not like, you know, like I know like some movies will shoot up in a, uh you know, Rancho Cucamonga. Here yeah. you're actually down in New Mexico, in the desert. It looked... Where they don't even know what a cell phone you, is. You look around. I remember taking a photograph. I mean, I took a picture. The set was built in the middle of nowhere. And you look around, as far as you could see, no cities, no power lines, just mountains. You feel like you're time traveling. And then I did a show with my buddy John Lair, who I'd worked with before, called Quick Draw, which was a comedy, an improv improvised Western comedy on Hulu. And uh, we did two seasons of that. I did a couple episodes of that. That was also set in the Old West. 
So, I, I mean, on that one, I got to ride a horse, and I was a marshal and everything. It was just so much fun. So it's the ultimate wish fulfillment. It's being that kid you were when you were playing with your friends, and you were playing Cowboys and Indians or Dress Up or whatever. And I always say, you know, I was never a better actor in my life than I was when I was like seven years old, because that's the time you absolutely believe everything's right. really happening, and you're fully <laughs> committed, and you just tap into that part of yourself when you get to play these roles. Um, and it, it was a blast. It was a dream come true. I would absolutely do another Western. It was so much fun. What was, did, you, did you know how to ride a horse before this happened, or did you have to go through a whole learning process? Because I one time, I rode a horse in Mexico. Okay, now, this is years ago. It was in Rosarita Beach. Right. And now you're paying like five bucks for a horse ride. <laughs> and, and these horses, they're like malnourished. They're like, they're like so skinny. And I get on it, and they don't have a saddle. You're just getting on bareback. Right. And I'm going down the beach, you know, and the thing just stops and takes a piss. And I'm sitting there going, and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And it's and that's different. But now these, because it's a production, there's some these are buff, powerful buff horses. Horse. Yeah. yeah had are, you ridden a horse before? Did I, you have to take lessons? I had a couple times in my life I had been on a horse, but I had to get a brush up before I got on this thing because I knew, first of all, this was a massive, powerful, very high spirited horse. I mean, it was well trained, but still, you know, it's a wild animal. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. But more importantly, I had to ride out of a, a, a a bunch of trees into a clearing and I hit a mark, you know, hitting a mark with on a horse is difficult because you have to be able to control that thing to the point where you're going to get where you need to be for the camera. And so that took some, some training, some getting used to, but at the same time, I mean, when you're in the outfit and I got the vest on and the badge and I got the holster and I mean, it's, it's, it's the best. It's just play, play acting at its finest. It must. Yeah, you're right. Cause we did. I mean, everyone played Cowboys and Indians and you right. had a stick and you had, you know, and it was like, I don't even know how, who we picked, who was Cowboys or who was Indians. Well, I mean, you take turns. I mean, right? I might grow up yeah. in Cherry Hill. Everyone was white. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, the Jewish kids are, you know, that's half the neighborhood. You know, yeah, the Jewish kids are the Cowboys. We're the Indians. And it's a thing. You're right. Cause when you're a kid, you are acting because you're giving it all because you're sitting there. You know, and we were from a different generation where we didn't have video games. We had Pong. Right. You know, yeah. and, I mean, and Pong was great for us. And electronic football, I mean, and then Coleco brought yeah, in. But you get passing. bored with that pretty quick. Yeah. You know, you're so, not going to sit there for yeah. hours playing Pong. You play for 20 minutes and you go outside and start playing again. What are some of the games you played as a kid in the Philly area? Because we used to do something, we used, and this was bad. We used to do fireball where we light a tennis ball on fire and roll it down the street. <laughs> but it's just awful. Like one time it went under a car and we took off, and then someone's dad came up to my mom and said, I think I saw your son rolling fireballs down the street oh that's what, funny what were some of the games you guys played well for us it was wiffle ball um you know what we obsessed about i mean this is almost all i did when i was a kid outside was street hockey we just played a ton of street hockey because you have to remember i came right of age during that first stanley cup win and the city just became flyer crazed you know it was everything was flyers those two years in a row when they won the cup I mean, hockey exploded in Philly, and I was 10 at the time, so really just caught my imagination. So me and my buddies, we all ran to the toy store, and we got our street hockey sticks and those orange street hockey balls. The and, yeah, right, exactly. And we got the the uh, yeah, a couple trash cans. You'd stretch them across the, the street. You know, those that was your goal. And have a guy, and you'd strap pillows to his uh, his legs and stuff so he wouldn't get too bruised while he's firing a slap shot at him at uh, 80 miles an hour. And we just, from... After school until sundown, played street hockey constantly. That was our thing. See, we were the same thing. And it's funny you said about the the ball, the orange ball. Well, no one knew that the orange ball was a summer ball, and there's a blue ball that was softer that was a winter ball. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, I didn't either. I remember we were playing the fourth graders against the seventh graders, and they put me in the goal. And I still remember this kid took a slap shot, 
And I didn't have a cup. We knew it was going to hit me oh, right in the nuts. no. And I was like getting up and I was like, oh, I can't. I'm like, you want to play? Like, I don't want to get yeah, up. I shake can't. it off. And man, the next shot, the guy aimed. He hit me like the inside of my thigh. Oh, I said, I'm not, I'm not playing goalie again. <laughs> Screw this. I'm not. But you're a hockey fan. You're like this. A guy I went to high school with lived next door to Bernie Perrant. And we were out shooting pucks, uh, puck balls on the kid. Bernie Perrant came home from wherever he was and got in goal and let us shoot on him. And he's got, like, dress slacks and a shirt. Oh, and, of man. course, you know, us, our shot to Bernie Perrant. He doesn't, he doesn't need anything. Right. So now, now I also saw, now, you, your teacher came by uh, the studio, a teacher who really helped you out. Yeah, it was a weird um, thing. I, I had, I, I got a call at the radio station one day. And uh, the guy who was screening the calls took the message and handed it to me. And he said, this is from your junior high school English teacher who puts you in the first play you were ever in. And he's going to be in Los Angeles for a family wedding. And he didn't want to be out here without at least reaching out and see if you two could get together. So, Christ, I don't know, what is it, 35 years? Um, 35 years later, I got to hang out with the English teacher who, for whatever reason, saw something in me and said, "You should. Be, I'm going to do this play. You should be in this play. So he put me on stage for the first time, first time I had ever done any sort of live theater. And, I mean, it, it's one of those things. I mean, you hear about great teachers all the time. This guy was just a prince. He loved kids, loved teaching, and set me off on a path that he changed my life, basically. By one by one gesture, by one encouragement, he changed my life forever. So we he came to the house, actually, and he got to meet my wife and my kid, and he brought his wife, and we had dinner. And it was just great. I mean, there are so many great teachers I've had in my life who have really uh, shaped who I am today. To be able to go back and thank this guy and, and tell him what it all meant to me and, and to catch up was just a great experience. I got to tell you, also, I see your post on Facebook. I'm glad you're teaching your daughter to be an Eagles fan. Oh, yeah. Because that's like, I was like, yeah, I see pictures. I go to my girlfriend, I go, see? And she's like, that's cool. And I go, smart people. And smart a Flyers people. fan. Yeah. So we went, the Flyers were out recently playing the Kings. And so we went down to Staples Center. My wife's in her Kings jersey, but me and my kid were in our Flyers gear. And we lost, but still, she's very diehard. And she watches now with me. I've got the ice, the center ice package on DirecTV. So I watch all the Flyers games. And so she loves to, she's five. She'll sit next to me and she'll ask me questions about why, why did they blow the whistle? And I right. got to explain offsides to her, you know, and she's, she, she knows to cheer when the red light goes on when we score a goal. So it's, it's a good time. Now, because of your, you're in Hollywood, have you gotten to meet any Eagles or Flyers? Cause I know, you know, Craig Shoemaker. Yeah, sure. Well, Craig, he all, he meets every, I don't know. That guy goes back. He's like, Hey, he's hanging out. He's like, he had John Dorambos, uh, uh, Dorambos, the center, the yeah, center right, yeah. who's a magician yeah. opens for him when he's in Philly. Oh, that's fine. And then he had my buddy. Cause I met, tony luke when he is out here he has tony luke open for him oh, but, geez, but he meets great. all these guys uh, do you get to meet any of these flyers or eagles because you have the pull yeah but you know i have met only two in my life i met and hung out with vince papali which would be awesome when he was promoting invincible the uh, the mark Wahlberg movie and so i got to hang out with vince and that he's a trip he's a great guy and we had a good time and then i was just back recently i went home for uh, a visit and i went to a flyers game and through some friends of friends, I was able to get into the cigar suite there at the Wells Fargo Center. And uh, there he was. Bernie Perrant was sitting there. So I sat down next to Bernie and we talked for a while. And he was just a prince. So, you know, I, there's not a lot of Philadelphia athletes hanging out here in California. So you don't right. get to run to too many. But the ones that I do, I mean, it's that same thrill I get, you know, it, it, me being on the radio in Los Angeles, everybody comes through to sell their wares, whatever it is, TV show or movie. So I've met all kinds of celebrities, but nobody affects me as much as when like William Shatner shows up 
only because that's the guy I watched when I was a kid watching Star Trek. I mean, I'm, I become that little kid again. So that's the same way when I meet these guys from from Philly sports is especially like Bernie Pratt, somebody I idolized back in the day. Or when I remember when Vince Papali got that walk on shot with the Eagles, you see these guys and you, you become a little kid again, your eyes get big and you're just in awe. So those are the most fun moments. Dave Schultz does stand up in Philly. Are you? Oh, you're kidding me. And I remember I was doing comedy years ago in my hometown at Cherry Hill. And Dave Brown, remember him? Yeah, sure. Was in the audience. So I started yelling at him on stage. Yeah, you know, just around. Nicest guy. I mean, you would see this guy. And, you know, I was talking to him after. And he's just this tall, lanky guy with like a flannel shirt and these cheap pair of glasses <laughs> with like feathered hair. And then you sit there and go, this guy can like kick anybody's ass in the NHL. Easily. And you don't think so. Yeah. So now, now, when did your love affair for Batman? Now, you've done stuff. Well, you've been doing a lot of stuff in that area. Yeah. Batman. So what happened? What happened? What's going on? You met Adam West. Adam's a good friend of mine. I was just talking to him on the phone this week. Now, he was did, on Big Bang Theory, so I was uh, I called him up to congratulate him and compare notes what he thought about shooting that. What is what was it like, you know, once again when you met Shatner, it's one thing. But when you meet when you become good friends with Batman, yeah. and I know I know the comic book world is very big to you. Yes. What is it like when you, when you sit there and think of like when you're a little Ralph? Did you ever sit there and go, one day I'm going to be on the phone with Adam West? It must Never just in a be, million years. It must blow your mind. And how did you get involved with all that? It Again, it's just it was a s- luck. It was just good circumstances. I uh, when I got into radio, we were doing the morning show, and I started talking about the Batman TV series, which has always been a huge influence on me for whatever reason. I mean, when I was a kid, it was the first TV show I remember watching. Fell in love with it, and that led me to comic books, and that led me to being sort of a geek and a nerd, and um, never lost my interest i know some people grow out of it but i never lost my interest i certainly never lost my love for that batman tv series because that's one of the few shows you watch when you're a kid that grows up with you you know you watch it when you're a kid and you think oh this is great pals am good guys bad guys and then as you get older you start to realize how fucking funny the thing is you know how amazingly talented these writers and performers were and how they could walk that line between action adventure and just pure parody and camp i mean it's great work so i always liked the show when I start doing radio, um, Adam had some saw a book that he had just written, autobiography, and some other things. And so they invited him onto the show, and that's where I first met him. And we got to be friendly. He thought I was just a little bit of a fanboy, but we got to be friendly enough. And then I started pitching him. When I found out he had projects and stuff, I would bring him on the show myself. And I, during my little segment on the show, I'd have him, and we'd interview him. So we got to be friendly. But then I got to know him through Family Guy, because he, of course, is the mayor of Quahog right. on Family Guy. So we would hang out together in the green room waiting to record our lines, and we got to be friendly. And then, at one point, I found out that he didn't have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And that cheesed me off, because I figured there's a lot of people on that. If you walk up and down the streets in Hollywood, and you look at the Hollywood Walk of Fame... Every third name, you're like, who the hell is yeah. that guy? And then also now, even when you see it, I mean, you see who gets it, and you go, wait a second. Like, you're like, that person's not even in Hollywood. Like, there was someone who got it. I'm like, he's a singer. I mean, you're right. It's like someone who's, I mean, Adam West is iconic. Right. For everyone 50 knows. years, yeah. everyone's known who this guy is. If you come from Iowa to see Hollywood, and you're looking down at the stars, if you saw TV's Batman, Adam West, you would recognize that star. That's one you take a picture of. So when I found out uh, that he didn't have one, I started putting together a campaign to get him one, along with his uh, daughter, Nina, who's a sweetheart. And we started working on this campaign, and it took us years, but we finally got him the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So um, he was always very grateful for that, and we were very close with 
uh, working with him while we were putting that together. So, yeah, over the years, we've just become pals. And I did a pilot for a, a TV version of Hollywood Babylon, this podcast I did with Kevin Smith. We did a TV pilot for AMC television that didn't, didn't get an order, but the pilot was great. And I said to Kevin Smith, who I work with, I said, you know, I always thought as a little kid, if I ever had a TV show, the one thing I was going to do was to get Adam West on it. And so I made that dream come true. Just for the pilot, we did a segment called West on West, where Adam West came out and did dramatic readings of Kanye West lyrics. <laughs> and so it's Adam West with classical music behind him reading the lyrics from a song called Bound 2, where he's talking about hoes and bitches and everything. And Adam with that great voice, you know, like, Have, has your bitch ever let you go with other bitches? And just broke the place up. I mean, he's got such a great, weird, twisted sense of humor. So that was another great crowning achievement where I got to have Adam come on my TV show for as short-lived as it was. So we're just, we're just, we've become pals and he's just a sweetheart of a guy and his wife is great and his kids are great. And so that's one of those things like, okay, you know what, if, if that's it, if that's as good as it gets for me, that's a pretty cool achievement to become friends with your idol, you know? And you know, you know, always, you know, we don't think about it, but you know, someone like him who is iconic, you know, you just think about, you know, a, no matter what ever happens to him. He's Batman. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone says, Yo, I'm Batman. I'm about all these movies. But no, no. He's the original Batman. Right. Like, like no matter what you guys do, you you played Batman. He was Batman. And that's the difference. You play Batman. Right. He was Batman. Yeah. A lot of these other guys, you know, they come from previous fame or other roles or whatever, Christian Bale or Ben Affleck. But to all of us growing up, I mean, we didn't know who Adam West was. There was just Batman. He was Batman. And Sadly for him, that stereotyped him for a long time, and he had a hard time getting gigs and couldn't work. And um, I think for a certain time of his life, he was frustrated by that. But now he really enjoys it, and he loves how much it means to people. And he's always at Comic-Cons and stuff, and he's just so great with the fans. And I think the fact that Family Guy 2 has taken off, and he's, he's, he's probably as well-known for that now amongst a certain generation than he is for being Batman, because... You know, people in their 20s watch Family Guy more than they watch reruns of the old Batman show. So he's got a brand new audience of people who like what he does uh, in a whole new way. And he's just in a great time of his life. He's just having a blast. So he, he, he's he's great fun to hang out with and be around, too. Now, being a guy of a big comic fan, yes. what do you think of the new Batman Superman movie coming out? And I, I got to say real quick, Jimmy Kimmel did the funniest damn sketch on those Oscars. Oh, show after the Oscars? Yeah, I was, was great. You know, last night we're watching it, I go, because Kimmel's just so funny. Yeah. And it just, the whole sketch, and, and I'm not a big comic guy, but I was just, I was dying. But what do you think about with all like the, how these comic book movies have blown up? Yeah. Because, you know, it's like everything now. I mean, you know, you know the, what was the latest one? Uh, just the, with Ryan Reynolds. Oh, Deadpool. Yeah, that made so much money. I mean, what do you yeah. think as a, as a comic lover, are you, is it harder for you to watch a movie because you're like, man, they're not being true, or is it like, okay, you know what, they did a good job? Um, it varies from film to film. Um, you know, interesting bit of trivia, the two guys who wrote Deadpool were the two guys who created the Joe Schmo show. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so I, I've been talking to Rhett and Paul, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick are their names. Uh, I mean, they're going to end up having written the biggest grossing R-rated film of all time by the time it's all said and done. It's crazy. But that film is genius, and it's funny, but it's filled with action and heart and romance. I mean, it's really a great film, and that's all I ask for in any film, but comic book movies are the same. You know, I just want a story that's well told, but I always appreciate it when whoever's making the comic book movie gets 
at least the spirit of the character. That's why I think Marvel Comics is just crushing it with their films. Because when you go see Captain America or Iron Man or any, or these, any of these Avenger films, that absolutely captures the spirit of those characters. The costumes may look a little different. It's not exactly what I remember growing up reading those comics, but they get it. The problem I've had with some of the DC shows is that they're missing the boat when it comes to who these who these characters are and have been for 75 years. The last Superman movie, uh, Man of Steel, I thought really missed the mark in terms of what Superman is supposed to be. And they're not as fun as the Marvel movies. The DC movies are kind of self-important and overly serious and kind of grim. And I know they want to be gritty and dark and stuff. It's like it, it, not every movie has to be like that. And I thought Man of Steel was. And that's just the wrong tone for Superman, especially if you remember the Richard Donner film with Chris Reeve. I mean, that was a bright, fun, charming right. film. They played it straight for the most part, but it was there was a lot of joy in that film. It's not a lot of joy in these films anymore. So my... Uh, my anticipation for Batman v Superman is not high. I mean, I'm willing to give them a shot. I'll go. They're going to get my money, so that they don't have anything to worry about. But I just hope that there's some more joy in this product. Although they just said it's going to be two and a half hours long, and I was like, boy, I don't know if I need two and a half hours of anything. See, that's funny because you say that about the the movies. Because I'm not a big comic buy, but I I was doing a podcast, uh, the comedy film nerds, and they said go watch the second Captain America. And as I said, I'm not a big comic guy, but I went in and I was watching it. Me and my girlfriend are like, you know what? This is what a movie's supposed to be. This is what a, a blockbuster movie's supposed to be. We walked in. I I didn't have expectations. Right. Because I'm not, you know, bad. but I walked out and, you know, I was like, God, Chris Evans just looks, that guy just looks like Captain America. Yes. And you watch and I didn't know who the Falcon was or the, the, the Black Falcon or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, Falcon, yeah, his and, sidekick. And I was just sitting there going, I walked out and I go, man, that's all you asked for. When you go, you put your money down, you go see a movie, you walk in, you walk out, and if your friend said, what'd you think? I would say, go see it. It's yeah. fun. And you're right. When you think of superheroes, you know, I'm not looking for dark. Right. I'm not, you know, I don't think, you know, even like the, I mean, the old Batman wasn't dark. The old Batman was fun. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, it's And crazy. that was funny. I mean, they, they were doing a comedy. And I understand you don't want to do every superhero movie as a comedy. I get that, but it has to have an element of joy in it. I'm not saying laughs, but there has to be some sort. It has to tap into that inner kid in you somehow, I think, to really make it work on some level. And I think the second Captain America, Winter Soldier, was not just a good comic book movie. It was a great movie. Right. Uh, it was a political thriller, and there was action and, and heart and, and you know good character development, great dialogue. That's what you have to do. You just have to make a good movie. You can't. You can't say, well, we're just making a comic book movie, so all it has to be is explosions and costumes and stuff, because it'll fall flat, and a lot of them have. Now, because of your comic book ties, is that how you ended up on Agent Carter? Because I know you did a few narrators, and do, are you a fan of the old radio? Oh, boy, I love the old radio stuff. It's so funny that I ended up in radio, because when I was a kid, I had uh, these old vinyl albums of... Uh, su I was such a superhero nerd that I collected everything, but I had old vinyl albums of the old Superman radio show and the Green Hornet radio show and the Shadow. And I would, in my room, sort of try to dummy up and make new radio plays based on these characters. And I would do the sound effects, you know, live, like a Foley artist. And I would do these, I'd get my friends in to play different parts. And we would do, you know, a little cassette recorder, we would do radio shows, radio plays. So it's funny, I ended up in radio after all those years. But um, the, the Agent Carter thing happened, again, because the uh, the two great women who were the showrunners on that show, 
uh, Michelle Fazekas and Tara Butters were fans of the morning radio show. And they had heard me do, I used to do an old-time radio announcer voice. And that when they wrote that part in the script for Agent Carter, they said, we have to get Ralph to come in and be our, our announcer on the radio show. They did a Captain America venture program. It was like the old-time radio serials. So they brought me in, and it was just great fun. And they loved it, and they ended up bringing me back for another episode. So, I mean, it helps, certainly, that I'm plugged into that world, and I get it. And when I show up on the set, I know what they're going for. But really, it was one of those samples of someone just liking some other work of mine who said, why don't you come in and play in our sandbox? So I'm just lucky that way. Now, you're, do you go to Comic-Con every year? I do. Okay. Yeah. Now, you're a panelist. You've been a panelist. I've been a panelist. I've also um, moderated a bunch of panels for movies and stuff like that. And usually, we broadcast live from down there for the, for the week, too. So. And usually, we do Hollywood Babylon down there with Kevin Smith because he's the king of Comic-Con. He's always there doing a bunch of stuff. So um, that's a big time of year for me. Yeah, I go down every year. Now, have you seen a change? Because I always, I've told a story because I had someone, I had um, Robert Beltran on last week who was... Uh, Star Trek, sure. Yeah, for seven years. Yeah. And so he goes to stuff. And I remember I used to live in the gas lamp in San Diego 15, 16 years ago, maybe longer. And the convention center was small and it was just when Comic-Con was starting. And you, yeah, it wasn't, you know, I didn't worry about traffic. You know, I used to walk around. You'd, you'd see a few people. And it's grown so big do you think it's gotten too Hollywoodish? Because it seems like now, you know, it used to be for comics. Now it's yes. like, hey, we got a new movie with Frasier playing, you know, a golfer. You know, let's let's <laughs> let's just charge it. I mean, what? How do you think? Have you seen noticed a change in it? Yeah, I I know a lot of hardcore geeks. It really bothers them that it's sort of not their thing anymore. I it doesn't bother me. I think any exposure to that world and those those characters. It's it's all good. And look, people say it used to be about comic books. You can still go down there and find plenty of comic books. Trust me. You just have to. It's getting around on the floor of the convention center is the problem. Now, that's the only bitch I have is that it's just a nightmare of people. And I'm not a huge fan of crowds. So having to jostle and elbow your way to get anywhere around that convention center all week long is a little frustrating. But in terms of how it's grown and how the, yeah, all major studios have a presence there now and all the major networks and yeah they're all trying to vie for the eyes of these people to get the geeks on board whatever they're selling but you know that's hollywood that's show business that doesn't bother me it's still a great gathering of people who think like you who have the same common experiences or interests that you do and it's 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 like nerd camp for a week i get a blast out of it plus something that it was never there when i was a kid going to comic book conventions because i used to go to the conventions in philly I mean, they would have them at the convention center there or some hotel or something in the ballrooms. You know, when I was coming up as a nerd, it was just a sausage party. You know, it's just a bunch of just right. sweaty, overweight guys with pimples, <laughs> you know, flipping through old issues of comic books. Now you go down to Comic-Con and these smoking hot women in these amazing costumes from comic books. And uh, it's it's a whole nother, another breed of cat. So I'm like, this is all right. I'll, this is the best viewing I've had at one of these in a long time. And that that is never lost on me when I'm down there. It's funny how it has changed. It's like, you know, some of these groups just never changed. But that one did because I went to see Yes at the Greek like two years ago. And it was amazing just because I've never seen so many guys with ponytails and concert <laughs> shirts. And, and I think, you know, me and Joanne were sitting there and she's like, someone to give me tickets. And, you know, it's like it was they, they played some full albums. Right. But I was just sitting there going, oh, my God, I've never seen. I mean, it's like worse than a Rush group, you know, because it's like <laughs> Rush has, you know, the, the, the nerds. Yes. But these guys, but they're like 
dude, that ponytail, and, like they had the old like Foster Grant glasses, right? You know I mean, time so, warp. <laughs> so now you also you recently were on on the sh- uh, something about the Bachelor. Is that true? Yeah, I'm, I have become a huge Bachelor fan. So you're actually a big fan. Huge, uh, sort of accidentally. My wife and her friends always watched from the beginning. It's been like twenty seasons now of it. Um, and I scoffed being a guy. I'm like, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you guys are watching that garbage. But I found a couple years ago, you know, as I was walking through on my way to the kitchen, you know, I would catch a glimpse of something and it w- I would stop for 30 <laughs> seconds. It's like, what, what, what's going on here? What's, what is that guy? What is he saying? What is that? And you find yourself little by little getting sucked in. So now the past couple seasons, I've just been totally on board and, um, Got to the chance to to know Chris Harrison, the host of the show, a little bit, and he knows I'm a super fan. So they do this post um, post episode talk show after The Bachelor called Bachelor Live. It's kind of like The Talking Dead is after The Walking Dead, where they sort of break down the show and they bring on uh, celebrity guest fans and stuff like that. Not that I qualify for that, but um, Chris and the producer said, "We know you're a huge fan. You talk about it all the time on the radio. Why don't you come on and we'll talk about Bachelor?" So it was me and another comedian named Michelle Collins, who was very funny, and Lacey Chabert from Party of Five. She was on there, and so we uh, sat down for an hour and talked about it. And I got a chance to crack some jokes and have a good time with it, and it was a blast. I would go back and do it in a heartbeat because I, I just—it's such fun television for me to watch The Bachelor. I watch it almost like a like a sporting event. You know, you get to watch. The competition between especially when the women are competing for one guy it's fascinating for me and that's funny yeah because i do that with i just started watching well i i watch it halfway into the season hell's kitchen oh yeah because sure. i sit there and in the beginning it's all a bunch and there's always people from philly on there it's oh really, yeah it's, like, oh, it's true but if you always watch it in the beginning you're like there's always a bunch of douchebags yeah and then you know you just basically as i said if they broke down like if you were re- if you were auditioning it would basically Curse a lot and smoke mm-hmm. cigarettes because that's, that's all true. it is. You sit there, but that's the restaurant business in general. Yeah. Trust me, I spent a lot of time I, waiting tables and bartending. Those are the people who work in restaurants. But I watch it now when it gets, starts getting into like the eighth episode, you know, because my girlfriend she watches Big Brother, which I can't stand. Yeah, I can't and, bear that either. It's the she, only reality show I can't buy yeah, into. I can't, and she was happy. We were back east. We were having uh, the the Feast of Seven Fishes at a restaurant called Nunzio's in Collingswood, mm-hmm. and the one girl who came in third was sitting at the table with her family, and I said, "Hey, Joanne, isn't that that girl?" And she's like, yeah, so I'm going to say something. She goes, oh, I go, believe me, I talk to people all the time. I know how to handle it. You know, I'm not going to be like, hey. And she was, this girl was so happy that she, you know, was noticed. And, oh, sure. And her father and mother were like, thank you so much. I'm like, I didn't want to say, I think your show sucks. But, you know. Look, but somebody who goes on the Big Brother is not <laughs> looking to avoid attention, right? So if, if you recognize them at a restaurant, feel free to talk to them because you'll make their day for sure now we have a few minutes left what else is coming up with you what do you got going on uh i just got back from the sundance film festival with a movie that kevin smith wrote and directed uh called yoga hosers that takes place in canada and it's about these two young girls who work at a convenience store so yeah kevin smith is going back to his clerk's roots and uh, they work in a convenience store in canada and through a series of uh, remarkably weird misadventures they end up having to save canada from a uh, Nazi mad scientist who gets thawed out of suspended animation after 70 years who tries to take over Canada. And I play the mad Nazi scientist in the film. So it was my first sort of starring role in a movie. I got to work opposite Johnny Depp, who, who's also in the film, which was a blast. And his daughter and Kevin's daughter play the two young girls at the convenience store. So we took it to Sundance for its premiere, and I'll tell you, that was a blast. I've been to Sundance a few times. But going there with a project and getting a chance to go through the process of 
the interviews and and the, the parties and the, the premiere party and all that stuff was just a great time. So that opens up in the fall this year, and we're going to shoot the third. Kevin's done two Canadian comedies. He's doing a third. It's a trilogy. We're going to start shooting the third of those called Moose Jaws, which is basically just Jaws with a moose instead of a shark. Uh, that starts shooting in May in Canada, so I'll, I'll be going up there to work with Kevin yet again. So again, another circumstance of me being lucky, getting to be friends with this guy. Our podcast takes off, and now he puts me in all his movies. So again, I get to, I get to, I get to acting in a very sort of circuitous route. I never go directly there. It always ends up being the end around, but I get there eventually. But must be great, you know, being an actor to get work with someone like Kevin Smith, who's just his movies are great. You know, yeah. and and they're they're fun. They're not they don't they don't hold back like the script. The thing you just said, you know, the yoga hosers. It's, yeah. it's it's so different that it's one of those movies you go, I gotta watch it just because it's crazy. It's not anything like you're right. gonna see anywhere else. That's for sure. <laughs> you're not gonna say, oh, that same old story again, where the two convenience clerks have to stop the Nazi scientist. I'm so tired of seeing that movie <laughs> over and over again. Now, now, do you look forward to going to Canada? Yes, I love Canada, and we've got a ton of fans up there because of the podcast that Kevin and I do, and we've uh, performed in Toronto and Ottawa, and uh, we're trying to make a, a trip up to Vancouver. We've got a lot of plans to go up there, and they're just so nice and friendly up there, and um, they treat us like kings, so yeah, I love, love going to Canada. Now, before we go, the Eagles. What, you know, by the way, you know, next season the Eagles play the Rams in LA. I know. I just looked. I was like seven, uh, seventeen, though, right? It's, it's, it's not yeah, not twenty seventeen. But yeah, I'm right. still like because last year we were thinking we went to see them play Arizona a few years ago in Arizona for my birthday. It was right. great. But then we're looking at the games away. Like last year, it's like I don't want to go to Buffalo. I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to go. And like none of them. Even like, well, they play Miami in Philly. Well, we're not going. to, You know, that's what sucks. Yeah. But now, now, are you are you looking forward to this season? Oh, I am. Yeah, I think. I think Peterson's got a lot of upside. I think he's a guy with a lot of energy, former player, uh, solid, you know, defensive, uh, offensive coordinator background, learned under Andy Reid. That can't be too bad. Um, I think he's got his head on straight, and I think, I really think he gives him a, a shot in the arm. I think the players are going to respond to him. He's sort of the anti Chip Kelly. You know, Chip Kelly apparently was a standoffish douchebag who, you know, was just all about himself and all about ego, and everyone else was interchangeable. Peterson seems like a guy who really likes players, so maybe they'll produce for him. Who knows? I mean, it's always a crapshoot, but I think that, I think there's reasons to be optimistic, at least. How about the Flyers? Are they going to make the playoffs? Boy, they're playing great right now. I was watching the game last night when they play, played Calgary, and they just looked terrific. And, you know, they're right there. They're right there for the wild card, so... Who knows? I mean, if they get in, they probably won't get past the right. first round anyway. So I don't know how much longer I want to delay the disappointment, but I'd like to see him get in. Yeah. Cool. I want to thank you for coming on. Steve, um, a pleasure. Always. Now, give all your social media stuff because I know you tweet a lot. You're you're good on the Twitter. I do like Twitter. Yeah, it's fun for me. Uh, you can follow me at Ralph Garman on Twitter. And uh, I'm always on there promoting whatever I got to going on. But I just like to crack wise and, and get some stuff out there, too. It's a great. Um, you know, I was anti-Twitter early on when it started being popular, and Kevin Smith was the one who told me, he said, you got to get out there because it's it's the greatest thing in the world to be able to reach the people who care about what you do immediately. And he, he's right, and I've got, I've got some great followers, so yeah. So it's at Ralph Garman. People yeah. also uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. During the political season, I, I, I tweet a lot I just because I sit there. It's just fun, and I'm not I, – I get pissed when it goes on my Facebook, and then people – like get all mad. I'm like, I'm not taking sides. I'm. Not, I don't put like, don't start hating each other. Like, oh, screw you, Trump. Screw. I just make fun of what I make fun of. Right. It's not meant to be that way. So do that. Also, go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have uh, got a 480 episodes up on there. So CooperTalk.net. Email me, 
at Cooper at CooperTalk.net, and I'll get back to you and I'll send to you. Instagram is CooperTalk1. I send a lot, I put a lot of pictures of food up there because, as you know, I went through that health problem a few years ago. So if you go to my other website, StopTheSalt.com, there's my low sodium cookbook. It's Cooking for One. They're all easy, easy recipes, 120 of them, because you got to eat healthy because we're not getting younger. And what you do is there's no pictures. There's no pictures of the food because that intimidates you. You think you can't make it. And there's not a long list of ingredients because, you know what, if you don't have cumin, don't worry. None of my recipes <laughs> use cumin. But it's easy to make and you got to eat healthy. So here's what you can do. You can go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon and buy it or go to my site, StopTheSalt.com, where I'll sign it. And I make more money. So that's what it's all about, me making money. So follow at Ralph Garman. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.